The following is a presentation of the Boston Podcast Network. Podcasting is a great way for professionals to tell their story. Find out how you can get started at pod617.com. Are you the pod 617 studios in westwood massachusetts it's the boston podcast with david yaz and a rotating cast of characters from pod 617 the boston podcast network this is our Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, all the ships at sea, lovers, muggers, and thieves. Welcome to the Boston Podcast. If you like our show, I encourage you to follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your pods. And if you'd like your own podcast, please go to pod617.com to get started. It's the Boston Podcast Network. We produce podcasts. You could be the next big podcast star, a wicked big star. Anyway, talking, uh, speaking of wicked big stars, I have a star on the line. With me today is my guest. She is the lead of the Wellbeing in the Nation Network. Now, what might, what pray tell is that? Well, she's going to tell us all about it. Her name's Somava Saha, and she is here in the virtual studio. Thanks for joining us. And she's very patient because I showed up late to this call because of traffic. I'm okay. How are you, Somava? I'm great, David. It's <laughs> wonderful to be with you today. And same. Now, you told me you used to work in Boston before we started recording, where where are you from originally? Where'd you grow up? Oh gosh, I grew up first in India, India and Kolkata, then okay. uh, to Indiana, then Arizona, Boston, the Bay Area, and then back to Boston and and stayed, and then recently, about a year ago, moved up to New Hampshire. Okay, tax free, so all tax-free over. New Hampshire. You <laughs> you moved from India to Indiana. You said that's what you said, right? Yes, um, that literally translates yeah. in my language, David. Yeah. to not India, and <laughs> oh, it wasn't. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it was like wow. Indiana. <laughs> yeah, it just I I feel bad for you explaining that story to people because a lot of people must do a double take. It's like, well, wait a minute, which India or Indiana? No, both actually. Okay, so. I don't know too much about your organization, but that's why we're here. That's why you're on the pod. So tell us about, first of all, first off, what is the Wellbeing in the Nation Network? Well, uh, uh, that's a, a great question, Dave. So the Wellbeing in the Nation Network was created by hundreds of organizations that said, you know what, we're all trying to do good here. Some of us are working in to improve food access or housing access or healthcare access or to improve, uh, address racism. Some are working to address, but we're not really making a difference. In fact, when we look at what's happening for low-income people and people of color, depending, in, we know in the context of the pandemic, we lost so much ground in communities of color. And even before the pandemic, we could see debts of despair go up in rural towns, which had lost mines. We could see that people were, and we had some of the highest, as one of the wealthiest country in the world, some of the highest rates of child poverty in the world. And so when you, when you look at all of that together, it, it doesn't add up and all of our efforts alone weren't making a difference. So we said, what if we come together, put our pieces together, and think what we can do to advance intergenerational well-being and equity uh, together. So how did you get involved? So I got involved because I had been, at the time, leading the 100 Million Healthier Lives Initiative uh, over at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement right out, out of Boston. And in the context of that initiative, we were working with 1,850 partners in 30 countries, reaching over 500 million people. And what I could see was that, in fact, the, the issue was that 
each of these groups and sectors in healthcare, people working on incarceration and people working on economic security and jobs, they actually, their problems were connected. They all held a piece of the puzzle. In fact, there were solutions, but no one was putting these pieces together. And so the idea of the Wellbeing in the Nation Network was born out of that. And as we worked, we were at the time, it was leading a federal non-federal process for the National Committee on Vital and Health Statistics to say, how should we know that we're doing well as a nation? And as we looked at the measures for that they, they and, and said, what does it take to really move these measures so that people in this country actually have a hope of a fair chance at a better life? We realized that we needed to, to have something like the Wellbeing in the Nation Network to bring together these different solutions and actually move the needle together. And so the Wellbeing of the Nation Network was born. I left my great job as a vice president at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement to form an organization called Wellbeing and Equity in the World and the WIN Network to that's we sort of serve as the, the home or the host for the hundreds of organizations that are coming together in WIN. So noble cause, noble pursuit. Give us a kind of a hard example of your organization in action that's going on right now? Sure. So in the in the context of the pandemic, what we could see, because we were actually watching the data in real time, was that we were, in the context of the pandemic, not only were communities that were, had higher social vulnerability, but were in poverty, communities that were Black and brown, communities with higher rates of people with chronic diseases or special needs, all predictable way back in 2016, when the CDC drew maps of social vulnerability, that those communities were doing worse. What we could also see that we predicted is that when you have a system that where the playing field isn't even, when you put new resources, it it it, it there's an advantage to those who who have the, the, the better ground. And what, what we could see was that the resources were going in a disproportionate way too, whether that was paycheck protection program loans, whether that was vaccines, all of that was going disproportionately, not to the communities that were hardest hit, but the communities that had greater advantage. And it wasn't actually anybody doing something wrong or trying to do bad. It's just that we had an uneven system. And so part of what we said is what would it look like for us to come together to shift what happened? So we brought together as a network organizations that reached thousands of communities on the ground who were Black, Latinx, Indigenous, Asian, truly, and, and rural communities and older American communities and brought together the kind of collaboration that you don't usually see between, for example, 10,000 Black artists, activists, or people who are working to get out the vote Can the you, I, for popular sorry. democracy. I lost yeah. you. I lost you for just a sec. There it was a Zoom moment. Ten thousand Black artists. Repeat that part, please, because that sounded interesting. Yeah. So ten thousand Black artists, activists. Okay. Uh, a chromatic Black. So part of what we said, we knew that the public health and healthcare system was completely overwhelmed. I mean, I'm a primary care doctor. I've worked in public health globally for twenty years. I knew my colleagues were completely swamped, and and they we needed help, especially in the communities where there was a lot of mistrust of what the vaccine was and communities which didn't have easy access to health and public health resources. And so by bringing in just an unprecedented number of, of community members, Meals on Wheels workers in rural communities, to teachers, to barbers, to like we literally called in the public to be part of public health. We asked them to say, what creates trust for you 
and help them to define the message. And doing that by by acting as a network and putting our pieces together, we were able to get 30 million, nearly $30 million to the communities that were the hardest hit, get 2,066 jobs created in those communities, reached 44 million people and connected over 215,000, not just to the vaccine, but to what they needed for their life, food, housing, transportation. And that was, even though our base, our focus is the long-term, we knew in this moment, we needed to be there for people in a way that protected their well-being in the short-term, and then invite them to think together, what could we do together that we couldn't do alone? And this was featured at the White House recently at the ARPA Summit as a as an example of what, what could happen if you really put your pieces together. I take it you're a nonprofit organization? We are. Okay. And so do you do fundraising and stuff? How Tell me how you're funded. <laughs> That's a great question. We are funded both. Uh, we, are, we are absolutely funded by contributions of people who believe in what we're doing and want to contribute to advancing intergenerational well-being and equity. And so please do give. We, If you go to weintheworld.org or thewindnetwork.org, you'll see places to do that. And then we're funded by many people putting their pieces of the puzzle in. This this win began long before there was any funding at the table. Even the initiative I told you around COVID equity wasn't because there was money on the table. It was because we knew that we could bring our power and privilege together to do something more together together than we could alone. So what I think is really amazing about WIN is it's it's a force multiplier. And so every dollar that goes into WIN gets multiplied because of the contributions that every organization in WIN is putting in to, to take those, take what we have and to use it to create a greater impact in the world. So was there something in your past or in your youth that you think inspired you to do what you do today? Oh, sure. Isn't that how we all end up doing what we do? Yeah, uh, a lot so of us. I, for sure. <laughs> I, I mean, I my like for I'm, I, I used to be involved in a lot of special needs organizations, and my son has autism. That is not an accident. <laughs> that, is, that is by of design. Course. But at, at any rate, tell me your story. Yeah, David, I read a little bit about your story and would love to talk more about oh, it, about your story. So I, I grew up in a family that made $10 a month in India. And that meant that I grew up in part of the, the of Kolkata, a small town of 18 million people where we lost electricity every night. So my mom would be on the veranda and would say, look, look out into the world. And she was a math teacher. So she would ask me a lot of math questions because she wanted to be sure she wasn't wasting that time. So I got good at math. But the other thing that she did was say, look at the world. And when you look at the world, when I looked at the world, what I saw was miles and miles of shanty towns with millions of people who were, who were brilliant and creative and resourceful, who were just barely make, living in shanty towns, just making it through the day. And what I what struck me was how um, how much human potential was being lost in the conditions that kept people in poverty. And I think the other big moment in my life, fast forward, ended up in Indiana, and ended up eventually at the Berkeley UCSF Joint Medical Program, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. And there I got to go to, for my master's work, to Guyana. And in Guyana, in, in the Rupununi region, in this, at the time in the second poorest region, in the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, predominantly indigenous region, working together with a, 
a, a different set of principles of development that said that we are whole, that communities have what they need, that if they could be free to actually create the solutions that are needed, if we could be practical about solving things like uh, inequity and poverty, that it could be done. And I got to watch over 10, 20 years as community health workers and villagers and teachers with fifth grade education utterly transformed their systems with a very different way, a, approach to creating change that trusted in their in their wholeness and nobility and what they had to offer. And that that shaped my career to be about how do we create abundance in the process of creating change? And how do we redefine this work of equity, not of people who have something giving to those who have nothing, but as a way of unlocking the, the incredible wealth of trapped human potential that, that is in all of our communities. And you know this as a father of a child with special need. Mm -hmm. Every person has something, I believe, mm -hmm. to give. Yeah. And often it's it's in those places that are our differences that we find the gifts that we have for one another. Yeah, interesting parallel. I'll buy it. It's true. Some people need help. Some people need help to unlock their potential. Some people, due to simply due to circumstance or the way the world is these days, they need, they need some help from people yeah. like you. And and I applaud you for it. It is uh, once again winnetwork.org. Um, let me let me ask you this. I'm going to get a little philosophical this morning. Just when I was, I learned what I know about equality and civil rights mainly from my parents and my mom, who was a big fan of the Kennedys growing up in Boston. And so she was kind of a little bit of a bleeding heart. And she used to tell me, David, in the in days gone by, women weren't even allowed to vote. Can you believe that? And people of different races weren't allowed to get married. Can you believe that? And the story she always told me was kind of of how, but we're moving forward. Like those things don't happen anymore. And so this is, this is probably a terribly oversimplified question, but it, do you believe that as a society or perhaps as a country in America, we continue to move forward on, on issues of quality and justice and things like that? Or do you worry that sometimes we're going the wrong way? Because that's what I worry about sometimes. So, again, with apologies that it's sort of a, a clumsy question about this huge, this huge issue. But what are your thoughts? David, it's an important question. And in, in fact, if you look at progress, what you see are movements forward and reactions back mm action and reaction. And in a true democracy, it's what we all collectively choose our country to be. That's who are, who we will be. And I think this is a moment which I'm a doctor, you know, I'm a public health person. Mm -hmm. Why, why do I care right. about democracy? It's, right. it's because it's all of our jobs to care about who this country is and where this country is going. As an immigrant that has benefited from the gifts of this country, it's and as a citizen, it is even more my responsibility, and I think all of our responsibility to do our part to define the nation we want to be. I think this the the soul of America has always been up to us. And I think I think that's we have to decide, do we want to be a country which is the wealthiest in the world, but where 40% of kids are born in poverty? 
do we want to be a country where in Boston you could be born in the same shiny hospital and grow up just miles apart, where at birth I can predict a 10-year difference in how long you'll live? Mm. And, and should all kids be able to have, like should all people be able to have what they need to, to, to be able to have that pursuit of life, liberty, and, and happiness, to have a fair chance at that. I think that's that's all anybody is is saying in, in our network is that everyone should have a fair chance, and that that chance shouldn't be taken away because of lack of access to healthcare, lack of access because of structural racism, because of class differences. It should be all of our fair chance, and then. Some people will work harder. Some people, there's always going to be differences between people. But but for us to choose to be a democracy means that everyone's voice counts and everyone should have the right to pursue those things. And that it's all of our jobs to create the conditions where everyone has that right. Well, I'm inspired and I love, we could go on for hours, I think, on this because, well, I mean, you're doing most of the work here, Asoma. I'm just kind of asking the questions, but this is this is just great stuff. I congratulate you on everything you've done so far, and I encourage people, go to the winnetwork.org to participate in these programs. Anything else we should be telling people about how they can get involved in what you're doing? Oh, gosh. We have opportunities for people to join different communities, to join dialogues, to show up and tell their story. So come and join us, come be part of community and, and please go out there. And because at the end of the day, get involved in your local community, get involved in creating that, that condition, those conditions for every, whether you join the wind network or not, get involved and help this country be the one that be put your voice forward because all of our voices matter. Help. Oh, heck yeah. Heck yeah. I'm not upset about the traffic anymore, Soma. And I have you to thank. <laughs> Keep doing what you're doing. We need more of you out there for crying out loud. Winnetwork.org. Uh, Soma, I'm sorry we're up against the clock, but I hope you had fun. I did. It was great to meet you, David. Thanks. You hang there for one second while I say goodbye to everybody else. If you like this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts. And if you want your own podcast to get started, go to pod617.com. You could be the next big podcast star. On behalf of Soma and the windnetwork.org, my name is Dave. I'm just a guy from Boston. But if you're not from Boston, you must be the other guy. Have a great day, everybody. I am a father.